It's 12 o'clock. Hello and welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. My name is Duduzile Ramela in for Jeremy Maggs this afternoon. MoneyWeb at Midday, your 30-minute information pack on the latest news headlines. Here's what you can look forward to on the show in the next 13 minutes. Action SA says it has handed over evidence to the Special Investigating Unit against the Gauteng Premier's crime wardens. We take a look at the energy situation in the Republic from indefinite stage 3 load shedding to load limiting. We also speak to MoneyWeb's Kieran Ryan, who's investigating a new directive from the Department of Home Affairs on swallow visitors. He will tell us about what the perceived impact on the tourism sector is. And we take a look at communicating in an election year. How can brands engage fruitfully? MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. Let's start with this. Action SA has presented what it says is evidence against Gauteng Premier Banyazali Sufi's crime wardens to the Special Investigating Unit, that would be the SIU, dubbing it state vigilantism. The party believes the wardens are inadequately trained, placing their lives and residents' or community members' lives at risk. Funzing Gobeni is Action SA Gauteng Provincial Chairperson, and he joins us now to tell us about the body of evidence they have collected and the information they've handed over to the SIU. Mr Ngobeni, sir, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Perhaps let's start with confirmation, sir. The report is with the SIU and you have uh, word they will be investigating? Yes, um, we were invited by the SIU to come and uh, present um, whatever information that we have that can assist them to assess um, um, whether they should uh, go ahead with the investigation or they should ask uh, for proclamation from the president. As you know, SIU's um, role is very limited in that they uh, they can only investigate once they have a proclamation from the president. So that's that's what we want to see them with. We, we, we gave them all the information that we have um, and, and they will then assess and confirm whether they will continue with that investigation. They've indicated to us that in the event, their assessment point to um, to a negative that says they, they they can't investigate the case, they will then recommend that we take another step, um, maybe refer the matter to the Hawks or refer the matter to the public protector. So we'll, we'll await their assessment and then we can take it from there. Right. No doubt you're not able to get into the actual contents of the information that you have handed over, but are you able to share with us how long your own investigations took? Yeah, look, we started raising the matter about this um, this uh, this issue um, way back uh, in 2023. Uh, you'll remember that the the scheme was uh, established at around April, May 2023, um, and um, immediately after that, uh, they went into training, which was which took about three months, um, and um, we we started getting reports uh, even from 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 that training facility that there were problems uh, about the scheme. So. That's when we started um, trying, you know, do, going around getting as much information as possible. Uh, up until later on, when um, we, we 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 recall that the the commissioner of the police, uh, Elias Mawela, um, you know, sent out a circular to all the, you know, station commissioners around Gauteng to to stop working with the with the crime wardens because they didn't have a legal status. So 
um, we investigated further and, and realized that um, indeed we are correct. You know, this scheme was established illegally. So we we have um, we have um, we have been investigating for some time, and we are glad that the SIU has taken interest in the matter because uh, at the bottom of it, it's um, it's money uh, of the state that have been used and have been used illegally. Things have since changed, Mr. Ngobeni, so more so uh, with the Justice Minister Ronald Lamola and the steps that he has taken. Is that not enough to satisfy the party? Not, not de- definitely not. Um, I mean, um, um, we believe that uh, Minister Lomola, you know, aid um, in regards to uh, to that problem. But uh, again, he can defend himself and say, I didn't, uh, uh, you know, say that um, you know the the crime audience should not, uh, you know, be be taken out, taken off the street and be uh, taken into training again. Because our contention is that um, you know they were they were trained for three months um, to be peace officers. But uh, Minister Lamola has uh, declared them as, um, as, um, as, as, as traffic officers. And uh, traffic officers go through a three-year uh, training process. And uh, these wardens have not, um, have not been trained uh, accordingly. So they are a danger to themselves. They are a danger to the community at the moment. Um, and, and I mean, if you look at uh, the accidents that they've had uh, with the BMWs, the high-caliber cars, it also you know, demonstrates to us that there might be a problem in terms of just uh, training on advanced advanced driving. You know, So it's, it's, it's all those things that we are worried about, and we are raising them within the parameters of the law. When will you know or get word from the SIU that um, the information you've provided is enough for them to go ahead? Um, the SIU has uh, indicated to us that they will respond to us in the next uh, two weeks or so. Um, they are giving this matter a priority, um, uh, particularly because it involves lives, um, you know, um, of, of wardens themselves and lives of residents uh, out there. So they've given it a priority. We'll hear from them in the next two weeks or three. The contention, or rather the assertion that this is state vigilantism, more so when it comes to the crime wardens, what informs that? Yeah, we, we have received reports um, that um, you know, mem- some members of this uh, of the scheme uh, go around and, uh, and beating up um, and not only uh, you know, residents, but they are also fighting with uh, some members of the police. You know, and uh, and we, 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 we don't know where they get the rights to do so. Uh, obviously, you know, um, you know, some a little bit of force is uh, sometimes um, you know used by police, but uh, we we can't accept um, you know people that have been ill um, ill ill trained to be the one that um, that are enforcing the law to the point of beating up people. So that's that's what we are worried about. That um, um, you know this type of uh, of training that's normally you know uh, offered to traffic officers and those that um, will be able to enforce the by bylaws inform, enforcement and so forth has not been given to this colleagues who are, who are now on our streets and uh, and that is a problem to us. Mr Ngobeni, sir, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Funzi Ngobeni, Action SA Gauteng Provincial Chairperson. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. We are currently load shedding in stage three due to high demand or urgent maintenance being performed at certain power stations. And thus, South Africa reads the announcement on ESCOM's website regarding indefinite stage three load shedding. Lungile Mashele is an energy economist and she argues that for South Africa to find the light at the seemingly 
unending tunnel, the flip-flopping on energy policy must cease and investment in infrastructure bolstered. She joins us now to offer some solutions. Lungile, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Let's perhaps track the policy flip-flopping back to the 1990s. What happened to pupils who left school at the time and were placed in nuclear programs across various higher learning institutions here at home and abroad? So thank you very much for having me. So what basically happened in the 90s, government was intent that we're going to proceed with the nuclear program. However, at the same time, in 1994, they had halted an existing nuclear program, and then later on, they then realized that they were going to have to proceed with it. They then started putting kids through schools, allowing them to be educated in Russia, France, in the U.S., especially and particularly in nuclear, because this is what they had envisaged. When those kids then came back ready to take up roles, all of a sudden government has changed tack. Government says, no, we're not entirely sure. We don't think that we're going to go you know, on this path. But never mind that. Then the Pebble Bed Modular Reactor Program, which is in South Africa, was then shut down at exactly the same time. Now you've got a bunch of young people that were intent on entering into mm. the nuclear space. And unfortunately, they now have to go to other sectors. Most of these people ended up in the banking sector and they were lost to those skills. This Hmm. is very important as we head to procuring two and a half thousand megawatts of nuclear because no doubt we'll be told the same story, this country lacks capacity, we have no skills. But what happened between policy and implementation, we lost all those skills. Hmm. Is it um, impossible to then attract those that we lost um, to the private sector to come back into the space? So it's certainly not impossible, but unfortunately, there's been a massive time lapse. There's no point Mm. in going to fetch someone who qualified as a nuclear physicist in 2002 and has never seen the inside of a nuclear Mm. plant ever since. Unfortunately, in those instances, you will have to procure or get people from the outside. And, you know, it's not just limited to energy. It's limited to most sectors in our economy, Mm. whether it's nurses that left in the early 2000s. And today, the two largest medical groups in this country are decrying this and they're saying there is no nursing capacity. But we watch them get on their flights go to Saudi Arabia, mm. go to the UK and go to you know, other countries and we basically flip-flop between policies. Because, Lungile, we're also not short of plans in South Africa. We have the Reconstruction and Recovery Plan, which has identified infrastructure as a crucial driver for poverty alleviation, job creation and economic growth. How's that going? So absolutely, you know, when you speak about plans, if there's one thing that we're very good at is having plans, having policies, having numerous policies. But if you look at what government had actually planned in terms of implementation versus where we are now, we're falling very, very short. There's about a funding gap or not even funding gap. There's an, there's an infrastructure short, shortfall of about just over two trillion rand. So we're supposed to be investing heavily in infrastructure in this country. And unfortunately, we're stuck between austerity, we're stuck between changing investments, changing policies, and we're not moving forward. Meanwhile, this brain drain occurs Mm. on a daily basis. It would appear, though, Lungile, when you listen to the political speak, that government has a plan because the private sector is said to be falling over themselves to plug the gap. Is that sustainable? 
Absolutely not. We must also be very clear about which private sector is ready and is willing to plug the gap. If we're referring to the finance sector, which is the largest sector in this country, then we're basically saying that they are ready to fund, they've got money and they've got money to you know, spend on infrastructure projects, but they don't develop projects. So the government, on the other hand, needs to say we're proceeding with these projects, whether it's nuclear, whether it's renewables, whether it's gas, they will then subsequently fund. But if you're sitting in a situation where the private sector is ready and has got money ready to implement, but government is doing nothing and is not pursuing any of these plans, that's basically useless. Hmm. What then is the solution, Lungile? Like you mentioned, it's not just the energy sector, but you take a look at the healthcare sector. We are in an election year. And so whenever power exchanges hands, there's also new people that come into the system and new policies that are introduced. And so what to do? So you see, that's the most unfortunate part about, I would say, lots of African governments, or in fact, many governments around the world, that the policy flip-flopping continues to happen. It should be that policies are understood and agreed upon. And I mean, most of these even go through you know, parliament and they get signed off there. And so it should be a seamless integration between one leader and the next. But unfortunately, that is not the case. And the very important thing, the policy flip-flopping has to end. We need to stick on a path same as China, say, we've got a five-year plan, this is what we want to do, these are our targets, and we proceed with that. So that's the first thing. Secondly, when you proceed with those projects, you need to have timely execution. You cannot announce a project today. Those developers go and get skills in the next two months, but however, that project is only implemented in year eight. How are you going to pay for those skills? How are you going to retain them for eight years? And you know, lastly, the austerity needs to end. We cannot be a country where we're relying on the private sector to do everything for us. Government needs to play a very active role in infrastructure projects. And you would have thought this being an election year, this would have spurred them into quicker action. But this is rather unfortunate. Lungile, thank you very much for your contribution this afternoon. Lungile Mashele is an energy economist. I'm Simon Brown, host of MoneyWeb Now. Join me every weekday morning at 6.30 on the MoneyWeb website or the app to kickstart your morning with the most up-to-date business, economic and investing news. I ask CEOs about results, speak to analysts on their favorite stocks and get to understand the inner workings of the economy. Podcast published just after 7. MoneyWeb Now with me, Simon Brown, to start your day informed. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. From politics to energy. So if you are a resident of Baklu, Calvin, Polsov, Marlborough, Sunning Hill and Waterfall in Johannesburg and you have a smart meter, you may want to pay particular attention as ESCOM has selected you to be part of their load limiting initiative. Hilton Trollope is an energy analyst and Hilton, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. You're going to tell us exactly what this is. We believe it was piloted last year and due to the success in some areas, it is now being expanded. Let's start with the term load limiting. What are we talking about? So what we're talking about, Dudu, is that you voluntarily agree that you won't use more than a certain amount of electricity at a certain time. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is if you switch your oven on or if you switch your oven and your kettle on, you're using lots of electricity at the same time. So what you will agree to do is to not do that, that you will only put low power devices onto the system 
or only one high power device at a time, like a kettle or whatever. So you could have the kettle on, but if you put the kettle and the toaster on, doesn't you will then get cut a while later. Mm-hmm. And and the the reason they do this is. And just by the way, this is a progressive move, and it's done in many countries in many ways. So in South Africa, if you're in Baklu or one of the well-heeled suburbs or whatever, people had got used to having as much of electricity uh, that they want at any time. Mm. So because I can pay for it, I can just have as much as I want. What this does is it says to everybody, there is a shortage, and it's up to everybody if we cooperate and we don't all just take as much when we want and put all the air conditioners on, etc. then instead of cutting people completely, what we do is we just cut individual consumption. Does that make sense? Makes complete sense. Does that then mean that these individuals would have been identified to have high energy consumption? Possibly, because uh, the records on these smart meters Mm. does show what your consumption has been historically. But most importantly, and this is a constitutional issue, behind the meter measures, in other words, interfering with your supply in your home, it's your right not to have that done. So this is voluntarily. Mm -hmm. So what Eskom says, and what I really like about this, instead of putting us into the false pretense that we haven't got load shedding for a long time. What this does is it admits that we have a joint problem and also admits that collectively we can solve this problem. So, for example, I'm, now I'm just going to give a, a, an example that isn't directly related to this. Right. But if everybody in South Africa switched off their hot water geysers, we could drop two levels of load shedding. But to get everybody to do it is the problem because people say, if they can use their geezer, why shouldn't I, etc. Mm-hmm. So what Eskom is saying is similar to that. You won't be able to put your geezer and the kettle on for this load limiting arrangement. Voluntarily, they say, look, you can have your supply completely cut so that we can go down two levels of load shedding. Or we can all voluntarily cut to a certain level. But with smart meters, what it allows them to do, it says, okay, For the next hour, we've got an agreement with you that you won't use more than, let's just call it one kettle at a time Mm. or one thing at a time. Or you'll only use your lights and your TV, etc. They're all low. People will learn very quickly what high power devices are in this. If you do that, then we won't cut you at all. You can continue to have your TV on, all your lights, etc., all the low power devices. We can all do that. And with the smart meter, what it can also do is they can look at each person and they can say, hang on a bit, we all agree to do this, but we can see from your smart meter that you've switched on high power devices. And sorry, that's now not acceptable in this group that is combining efforts, that is cooperating to decrease load shedding. So we're going to just cut you. So if you want to join those people that don't voluntarily, it's like, you know, when there's water, there's a water shortage. We ask everybody to use less water. Right. But then we drive around the suburb, and if you're watering your garden, mm. then you're in trouble. It's similar. Okay. There's a shortage of power. Everybody uses less power. We have less load shedding. But those people that choose not to cooperate in this voluntary, you know, when they've agreed, Eskom can say, sorry, you're not cooperating. Bang, you get no power, you load shed for the load shedding period. So Big Brother is always watching. And so ESCOM is the one that actually controls um, the smart meters? So I don't like the Big Brother thing. I like the idea. You know, it's in all societies. 
we all want to cooperate. If you've been a teacher, or you've managed students, or even run a company, you'll know that most people want to make it work. And you're not being big brother if you go and find the one person that doesn't you know, cooperate. That is, you are doing the kind of adult thing. You're going and finding irresponsible children. And you're saying, guys, come on, we're all trying to help. That's not big brother. Because there's a kind of libertarian response to this. How dare they look at you know, this, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not that. This is progressive. Okay. All right. It's cooperative. Okay. Hilton, just a final question, perhaps, because um, yeah. you'll speak to energy analysts and they'll tell you that business is also a big contributor because in January, Absolutely. early January, we enjoyed a reprieve because businesses were closed. And so what is being done on that end also to ensure that big business plays its part? So there's a wide variety of things to do. So just starting with the really big businesses, they've been doing this all the time with Eskom right from the start. Eskom has got a contract with every single big business. They have various levels of demand. And Eskom, when they agree on their tariff, they say to the big business, we would like to agree with you that if we've got a shortage, we will ask you to voluntarily curtail your consumption. And businesses do that. They've been doing it from the beginning. Small businesses, it's a lot more difficult. And mm. they'll probably be pulled into the smart meter system, all the small ones. But all the really big energy users and the medium-sized ones, They've been doing this okay. all along anyway. All right. Hilton, thank you so much. Hilton Trollope is an energy analyst. MoneyWeb at Midday for all your up-to-date stories. It's 20 minutes after 12 o'clock. You are with MoneyWeb at Midday. Uh, I'm Tutuzi Laramila in for Jeremy Mags this afternoon. Let's take a look at this now. So the Department of Home Affairs stands accused of undermining tourism recovery with its directive demanding that short-term visitors who have not received visa renewals by the 23rd of February this year be immediately removed from the country. MoneyWeb's Kieran Ryan is investigating this for us and he joins us for a debrief, if you will. Well, Kieran, thank you very much for your time. Let's start with this directive. What more do we know about it from the Department of Home Affairs? The reason for the directive, it was issued on the 21st of December, which is just before Christmas when, you know, they expected nobody's really paying attention. And, uh, of course, come January, people start realizing there, there are real-world consequences here. So what the directive says is that visitors who came who come into South Africa on a 90-day visa and a lot of countries you can come without uh, having to go to a South African embassy. In other words, you get a visa uh, at the border when you arrive. Typically, what has been happening, and they call these swallows. These are people who come from the Northern Hemisphere, from uh, United States, Canada, Europe, and they come here for 90 days. And they, in the past, have automatically got a 90-day extension. When the first 90 days runs out, they would apply and they would get a 90-day extension so they can stay here for a total of 180 days, which is six months. And then they would do that during our summer months and they would migrate back to the Northern Hemisphere for the the, the Northern Northern Hemisphere summer. So that's why they call them swallows. Now, the uh, Department of Home Affairs is so backlogged, this is what the directive says, that they say if you do not receive your visa extension by the 23rd of February this month, uh, you'll have to leave by the 29th. So that's curtailing their visit. Uh, and it's probably going to be um, a huge amount of people that will have to leave the country. The problem with that, of course, is economic because these are typically high spenders. They come here. A lot of them have got properties in South Africa. They've got businesses. They employ South Africans. 
but they're not residents. They're not permanent residents. They, they are swallows. Mm. So they, they will be leaving, and with them will go their money. They won't be spending the money that they typically would spend during their visits to South Africa. Is that what seems to be the issue more so for the tourism sector? Because you engaged with a few um, industry players there. What are they offering as an alternative? There is no alternative. That's the directive. Um, The Western Cape government has offered to assist the Department of Home Affairs to clear the backlog, assist with the administration and the processing of these these visas. But we don't know whether that's going to be accepted or not. Uh, At the moment, this is just what the government, what Home Affairs says is going to happen. And I presume that's what's going to happen. Uh, an alternative, I guess, where that comes from is that at one of the people that you spoke to was speaking about a new directive allowing for an automatic 90-day extension of the visas. That's right. And that's been proposed in the past as well. Rather than give 90 days, do what a lot of other countries do when people come to South Africa, give them automatically 180 days. And then you don't have any of this need for administrative um, intervention, you know, at the end of 90 days, you can just imagine the choke points that you find in home affairs trying to handle this. It's just inconceivable that they didn't think of this in the past, but that is a suggestion that has been made. Mm-hmm. The directive also does say for uh, people who are, who've applied for long-term visas and people who've been denied long-term visas, they have to leave the country by the 30th of June. So there really does appear to be a problem. And if you look at the the stats, tourism is actually doing quite well in South Africa. In the, the latest I've been able to find was for September. The uh, arrivals from the Northern Hemisphere countries was about 17% up on the previous year. Remember, tourism was completely smashed during the COVID mm. era. So this is very welcome. But now these swallows, and they reckon to be hundreds of thousands of them who come to South Africa every year, that's a huge amount of money that they would spend in South Africa that they won't spend now. Right. You mentioned that this directive was sort of um, released in secret, if you will. Does that suggest um, because the what the offering or rather the excuse is that there's a backlog does it suggest that there's something more sinister that is happening here have we been able to speak to the department of home affairs no the department of home affairs uh, has not responded so uh, they they have they did issue this on the 21st of december which is a time when nobody's really paying attention and i think that the if Shortly after that, like a week or two after that, we got these stats coming out from the Border Management Authority showing the, the vast number of people that migrated into and out of the country in uh, over the festive period. And it was like five, five and a half million people. That's a huge number of people. That's about 8% of South Africa's population is moving in and out of the country. And maybe trying to show that, you know, this is this is such a big number that, uh, you know, you clearly have a department here that has a lot of work on its hands and this would kind of justify why they're now having to issue this directive and and chase people away early. All right, Kieran, thank you very much for that update. Kieran Ryan is a MoneyWeb journalist. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. 
All right, let's end it off with this. According to the Center for American Progress, a United States Policy Institute, 2024 will be a record-breaking year for elections. It notes that more than 2 billion voters in some 50 countries will be heading to the polls. South Africa, as we all know, is no exception to the rule. Newsrooms will be abuzz with political discourse while some brands will be mulling how to contribute or engage with the politics of the world. Troy Mocheko is the director for Newsroom at Ogilvy PR. He joins us now to tell us how brands can successfully engage with elections. Troy, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Let's start with whether it's a good idea for brands to engage in the political space. Hi, Judith, and thanks so much for, for having me. Well, I think that's something that really needs to be thought about strategically by each brand. And I think we know that some of the hot topics that are going to be discussed um, in the in the media space and that you're really going to be competing for space with is issues around the economy, the energy crisis, international relations, um, coalitions, voter turnout, the youth vote. And a lot of these can be really challenging um, for brands to jump into the conversation. Um, we've seen some of your more consumer brands tapping in quite nasty into the space, especially around voter turnout, you know, looking at issues of incentivizing people to come out and vote. Um, brands like Uber, um, there was a case study where um, Uber offered um, people free rides to polling stations. We've seen it with some local brands um, like Wimsey and Nando's. And those are really easier topics for your more consumer-focused brands to get involved in. But when it comes to these more serious issues, it can be very risky to, mm. for brands to... Um, overtly push a political point of view. And I think they have to kind of sit back and ask themselves, does this issue or cause that I'm taking up really um, directly impact our business operations? Um, are our companies, people um, affected? And it really needs to be authentic if we do decide to enter into this political fray. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to make sure that it's deeply aligned um, or, or rather authentically aligned our own um, company values and purpose. And then I think um, we need to assess those risks on a case-by-case basis. Are we making specific commentary that could alienate um, a section of our customer base or perhaps our stakeholders in government? So I think it's really important that we understand um, who our audience is and make sure that we are, if we are going to enter these conversations, around these serious conversations that we provide real value to our audience and maybe even offer up solutions to some of the challenges mm-hmm. that have been outlined um, in an election year. And then I think, yes, we can enter those conversations, but we have to do so quite mindfully and understanding the risks involved. Absolutely. You speak of authenticity. And so there's the proliferation of influencers. And so if you're an influencer, how do you avoid becoming a political target or presenting yourself as bias where people question your authenticity? Well, I think that's that's why authenticity is so important and making sure that if we are going to speak out on some of these really, um, which can be polarizing political issues, I mean, especially like some of the issues around international relations, some of the issues around the economy, some of these issues really spark huge debate amongst the public and amongst ourselves. And if you're an influencer or a, a brand specifically, I think when you enter into these conversations, you really need to do some scenario planning and think about, okay, if I say X, 
who who's going to react to this? What type of reactions am I going to expect? And can I withstand that kind of um, pushback and that kind of um, you know reaction to what I'm saying or what I am pushing out, what my messaging is? And I think it's about understanding that sometimes you're not going to um, have everyone agree with you. You are if you are going to get into some of these conversations. It's about expecting a bit of pushback. Maybe we're going to expect some pushback from policymakers who disagree with us if it's if it's a serious policy issue that we are wanting to engage in. But then um, we can also look at how we're engaging and are we taking that strong turn. For example, if there's an opportunity for us to add value around a topical issue, we've got um, the, the State of the Nation address coming mm-hmm. up um, in the next, I think it's on the 8th of February, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, we've got the mining and data. If we're adding some valuable commentary around these issues, providing insight into maybe unpacking what some of the issues are, um, then I think it's, it's, we can really add value and, and engage in these topics. Um, but I think it's about the way that we do it and making sure that we do it strategically. Um, and like I said, most importantly is authentically. To jump on an issue because it is the trend of the day, or to um, jump on a soapbox because um, it, you know you want to get likes or views, that can be very risky and can backfire quite horribly. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and your grace uh, this afternoon, Troy Mocheko. She is the director for Newsroom at Ogilvy PR. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. Okay, before we go, we asked you on our daily X poll yesterday whether you think strides are being made in South Africa's logistics crisis. These were your options. Target the root causes, refine and reinforce policies, and the third one, operational improvements. And an overwhelming number of you say the country needs to target the root causes in order to end the logistics crisis. And following today's conversation on the role of communications in election campaigns, we are asking whether a good communication strategy impacts your decision on who to vote for. You can vote on our LinkedIn and X pages. Jeremy Maggs will deliver the results when he gets back on Monday. Thank you very much for tuning in to MoneyWeb at Midday. We also do have a podcast on our website. That's moneyweb.co.za. I'm Tutuzile Ramela Bula.